They never felt competitive. I didn't really feel like I needed to beat anybody until I got in a boat at the beginning of my career. Our coach at the end of the Learn to Row uh, first year class uh, lined us up a pair of eights and I was off to the races. That boat's not going to be us. And <laughs> I discovered I really was competitive. Hello, and welcome to Study State Podcast. We're really interested in backstories, the experiences on and off the water that make people the rowers, coaches, and coxswains they are today. By sharing these stories about the humanity of our sport, we're revealing a narrative about rowing culture that celebrates real life experience from launch to coxie at every level. We're Tara Morgan and Rachel Friedman, and this is Study State Podcast. Sit ready. Thanks to everyone who listened to our last episode, a conversation with Dick and Pete Dreisigacker, the co-founders of Concept2. In the early 1970s, these brothers were just a couple of grad students messing around with carbon fiber in their kitchen, hoping to develop a better ore. Nearly 50 years later, their composite ores and row ergs are used around the world by everyone from scholastic athletes to Olympians. Pete and Dick open up about getting hooked on rowing, how Title IX expanded the demand for oars, being champions of rowing in the 1980s fitness market, and a whole lot more. If you missed it or any of our episodes, listen anytime at steadystatenetwork.com slash podcast or ask your smart speaker to play Steady State Podcast. This episode is made possible in part by Concept2 and Lake Washington Rowing Club. Become a sponsor for as little as $65 at steadystatenetwork.com slash sponsors. Do you remember rowing with wooden oars or making blades? Concept2 brings over 45 years of innovation to the sport of rowing. Their newest comp blade is a smaller sized blade that feels lightweight, efficient, and stable. Unlock speed with a comp blade, available in both sweep and skull. Find out more at concept2.com slash comp. And for folks out West, Lake Washington Rowing Club is full steam ahead organizing the 43rd Head of the Lake Regatta, set to take place in Seattle on Sunday, November 6, 2022. It's the last big head race of the season. LWRC hopes to see you there. For more information, visit headofthelake.org. So today we're talking with Kathy Frederick, the founder of Row for the Cure. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, I'm really excited about it. Absolutely so excited about it. We are going to talk with you about rowing and Row for the Cure and rowing as a big part of your life. But to get started, one thing we always like to do with our guests to help our listeners get to know them is we do a little thing called rapid fire Q&A. So a handful of questions, quick answers. Are you ready? I hope so. <laughs> okay. I'm going to go first. Port or starboard? Both. Bow seat or stroke seat? Both. Sprint race or head race? Sprint. Unisuit or tank and trow? Unisuit. Barefoot or shoes on the erg? Oh, shoes. And on the erg, calories, watts, or splits on your monitor? 
definitely splits. Best place to row? Willamette River, Portland, Oregon. And coffee before or after a row? Both. I like this. A lot of your answers were both because you're just a well-rounded, let's do it all. (laughs) I like to think of myself that way. (laughs) Yeah. That's a great way for our listeners to find that common ground. You know, we all know we love rowing and that gets us uh, talking to you. We want to get started kind of back at the beginning of your life. Um, So it sounds like when we've done a little bit of the math um, (laughs) that you grew up in an era when girls didn't play aggressive competitive sports and but a lot of little girls were putting on tutus and ballet slippers and learning to dance and that included you so what did ballet bring to your life wow uh it formed the foundation for me of learning very early the value of focus on technique And I carried that through into rowing, the idea that there is the perfect way to hold your hands, hold your head, hold your back. You know, the the stroke itself has a a dance feel to it. And um, I also learned dancing together with other girls. Um, I, I was born a twin. So I started out as a team member. And um, we danced in chorus lines a lot. I never figured I was really um, stage material for a career, but I really enjoyed dancing with the other girls and everybody matching up and staying with the music and so forth. When I introduced the waltz method and learned to row, I always say to the folks, did you take dance lessons for your wedding? Because a lot of people didn't even get into dance until they had to learn a dance for their first dance at their wedding. And I found that to be sort of common ground for people. But I'm like, that's what we're talking about. Like that, that kind of synchronicity. I did ballet very, very, very early on. I was, of course, like an uh, an elephant Clydesdale kind of dancer. For some of our listeners who may not know, Tara's 5'10", I'm 5'2". We kind of come at life a little bit differently. But Tara, I also learned ballet when I was little. And I was always that little tiny kid. I was like the 25th percentile in terms of like height and weight. And I could like barely reach the bars. But anyway, uh, my mom was very excited to see me follow in her footsteps this only for a couple of years. And then I became someone that wanted to follow in my big brother's footsteps. And I wanted to play sports. I wanted to play competitive field sports. So Kathy, I was actually kind of wondering, was there a time when you were growing up that you thought that you would have liked to have played some sort of field or court sport that wasn't available to to girls at the time? No. The short answer. I had experience in grade school. I was always the last one picked on the team. My twin sister and I were the last ones picked because if it was softball, couldn't hit, couldn't throw, you know. But my family are were runners, and so post ballet, growing up, there's not much for adults in in ballet if you're not 
you know, in a school and performing. Um, my dad ran track for the University of Oregon. So did my grandfather and I think my great grandfather. So it was expected in our family, but I never felt competitive. I didn't really feel like I needed to beat anybody until I got in a boat at the beginning of my career. Our coach at the end of the Learn to Row uh, first year class uh, lined us up a pair of eights and I was off to the races. That boat's not going to be us. (laughs) I discovered I really was competitive. Yeah. You know, I've heard that many, many, many times over and over, because I think Rachel and I talk about, you know, these, uh, how Title IX affected the generations of of women's rowing. And now we're seeing all the women who started rowing in their forties when they were young moms or just kind of midlife in their forties. And something was going on for them that a door opened or they busted through a door and said, I'm going to try this thing. And then there's that next level where these folks found that they were competitive athletes and they had no clue. So I wanted to ask you, what was going on in your life when rowing entered the picture? You started rowing at 42? 42, yes. Yeah, so what was going on? Well, my husband and I met a couple and he rowed at uh, Oregon State University with the same coach that my husband rowed at as a freshman. And um, my husband's school career kind of went different places and he didn't get to uh, continue with Roy, but he always loved it, always talked about it. Anytime there was something about rowing in the community, we had to go watch. And then we ran into this couple and he got Scott down to the club. And Scott said, you know, I think my wife would like this. So Jeff and Scott took Diana and myself down and took us out in an uncoxed wherry four. And I, I got in that boat and it was literally like dancing on the water. I was nearly in tears when I finished. When we got out of that boat, I yeah. said, when, when can I start? And they had a class session coming up and I was you know, I think it was the second year that the club offered classes. And you know what happens when you offer classes? It's women. Mm. 90% women come to classes. Men, yeah, they want to learn on their own. They'll get their own coach. They, they can do it. They don't need a coach right away. <laughs> but mm-hmm. women, women like classes because there's that sense of community there. So anyway, that's Absolutely. that's how I got started. So my husband and I still up until very recently row together and we're hoping to get back on the water soon. He's your husband of 52 years. You've been with him yes. for 52 mm-hmm. years and 50, you've, yeah. you've referred to him as your permanent mixed doubles partner. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. So who's, who's, who's in the bow? That's my question. Oh, I'm in bow. I steer and he sets the rate. And when we, when we bought our double, we agreed that we weren't going to try and coach each other in the boat. That's the key, particularly for married (laughs) couples, because (laughs) they call it the divorce boat. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. A lot of yapping in the ears. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I had a couple come take my learn to row who had been married three weeks. It was their second marriage for both of them. I, they were so in love. They were so great. 
And I was like, well, this will be a test. This will be good. <laughs> yeah. So can you describe, I mean, you described that feeling of dancing and you're in this boat and you've got two people who know what they're doing. You've got your, you and your, and your friend who had never tried it before. Did you experience send and push and and the synchronicity is that is that like what kind of got you like hooked in there uh there was no send <laughs> we were they they just worked really hard the the two guys really worked hard to to keep the boat set so that we didn't you know take on water but you know that was 32 years ago and so it's hard for me to remember. I just remember the delight of following others in the boat, trying to match when the oar went on the water and the body motion and all of that. So in my first year, I did experience what I called my very first sweet queen row. It was just it was like a dream. I mean, everything set. It was a novice class and we just happened to all manage it in one day and we rode up to the island and back down again and it was just absolutely wonderful and those are the sorts of rows that keep you coming back you want to try for it again what did what did you call that moment you just called it a sweet cream row sweet cream oh yeah oh, yeah, yeah, yeah buttery yeah, very yeah. Buttery. Like yeah. smooth yeah <laughs> no lumps <laughs> yeah we we just had uh the Dreisigacker brothers from concept two on the last episode and i was rowing yesterday morning in a straight for um getting ready to go to the charles and i was thinking what he had said about bubbles on black water at craftsbury yeah <sighs> he's like the mornings are so still and the water looks so black that they'll actually do a pass it's 3k and on their way back they see the bubbles from the first run and so i was thinking that yesterday morning with bubbles on black water because I could see them. Well, you have gorgeous so water out there. Yeah. So you're based in Portland, Oregon, mm-hmm. uh, and you row on the Willamette River. And which club do you row with? Well, I'm, I'm two, actually. I'm Cox now for Stationelle Rowing Club. But as I said, I haven't been on the water in, it's been three years. I've had actually five years worth of joint replacement surgery. So it's, uh, and the knees are the hard ones Mm -hmm. and um, had some complications. So we're actually planning on, on going back down and taking our double out, which we uh, keep at Portland Rowing Club. And that's not an active competitive club as an organization, but it's the oldest rowing club in Portland. We have three boats there. We each have a single and a double. So that's what I'm hoping we can do this weekend. But Station L is my rowing home, the Mm -hmm. home for my rowing heart. Well, I I hope that you are able to get back in your boat, if not this weekend, then very soon. And I'm sure that those first few strokes are going to be pretty, pretty wonderful just to be back in the boat and feeling all those feelings again. I keep dreaming. it. I I keep having rowing dreams. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So when I have rowing dreams, they're like panicky. (laughs) Maybe that's why I'm a coach. I'm a coach and somebody's not arrived on time or 
something. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm rowing in a, in an eight and the water is coming up to our shoulders and, you know, stuff like weird things, just really strange. Yeah. We want to talk to you about Row for the Cure because that is your baby. What was your inspiration for founding Row for the Cure? Well, I, I had been rowing for a few years and I had a friend who was very generous and she passed away from a woman's cancer. And I wanted to do something to honor her generosity. And I, it was her generosity was immense in, and she never said no to anybody. So I looked around and Komen was the organization in the community that seemed to be doing things in our community. And I thought, that's really what I want. I want to honor her and by doing that, reach right into the Portland metropolitan community and do a little something that can help. And so our first year, I uh, talked to the club and I'd never put on a regatta before either. So uh, we had a parade of boats and our path um, was right next door to the seawall where the runners were. So the common people, you know, uh, told everybody, you know, look over the seawall and you'll see the boats down there that are rowing for the cure. And so that was how we did that. The money that we raised, um, the local Komen affiliate sent uh, a portion back to their headquarters for research grant programs. Mm -hmm. And the rest goes into or did go into local community programs. That first year. Mm -hmm. You are interested in honoring your good friend. You want to do a little something for the community. What in your background did you take that you could say, I think that I can pull off this event? Did you have some other prior experience with hosting or putting together events? No. <laughs> you just thought, I can do this. I think I can I do my sisters and I very often would have parties at our house, particularly from high school and on into college and so forth. And my mother was um, a school teacher and she loved to do party kinds of events. So that was kind of it. And the other thing was I was the oldest of four children and my mom had to go back to work when I was 10 and I had a three-year-old brother. And so I kind of took over an awful lot of management of the household and problem solving. You know, for me, if you come up with a problem, start talking about something that's a problem, my brain starts working on solutions. What could we do? Where can we make it happen and so forth. And luckily I had wonderful friends at Station Hill Rowing Club who hopped on board and said, yeah, we can do this, you know, and somebody volunteered to do artwork. And, you know, it was just, I, and actually when I stop and think about it, I was involved with National Organization for Women back in the seventies. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, we did a lot of stuff there. So, I, yeah, I had put on events there. When I stop and think about it, we did some fundraising and so forth. But this was your first foray into rowing-related regattas and events. And it was really a transition for you from just a rower, I'm putting that in quotes, to a rower with a mission. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. At what point did you realize that this was something that could actually become an annual event and it could be uh, something that really made a lot of impact across the community? Well, the very first year, everybody said, oh, we got to do this again. This is really great. It's fun. It's a good cause. But I wasn't thinking nationally. About three years, four years down the road, I started hearing about people doing Row for the Cure events in other parts of the country that I hadn't, that they'd never contacted us. And so they were just doing it on their own. And about the same time, the folks from Seattle had been coming down to Portland's Row for the Cure. And they said they wanted to make sure they understood how it was done. And they went back up to to Seattle and put together their first row for the cure and blew our socks off. Um, (laughs) Terrific job and raised a lot of money. And we started just reaching out and dealing with Susan G. Komen too. They owned the for the cure phrase. And so we were tied to them legally using that. And so we really worked with U.S. rowing and rowing clubs across the country to get the word out that if you wanted to do a row for the cure, that the money had to go to Komen and we were happy to help and we starting to get organized. But it, it was it was like throwing wildflower seeds in the garden. You know, you never know where it's going to come up. The birds will pick them up, and take them far away. And it just... It was very organic, the growth of the organization. I would imagine that, you know, rowers are pretty passionate people in general, and there's not a lot of regattas that have a cause attached to them. But I think what I've seen as a participant and as a coach in this event is people go way into it. Like they are into it. It is one of the most flamboyant out there. I just have to ask you, when did the costumes start? Like at what point did you say, yes, feather boas and tiaras and wigs and balloons on your riggers and all of this is, is absolutely what we're about. Well, actually I will credit Penny Lewis in Seattle. She's Yes. Yes. She's, she was one of the founders of the Seattle Row for the Cure and Seattle is the most extravagant of the Row for the Cure events that we have across the country. People do sometimes get into costume, but a lot of times they're there for competition, but there's, there's always a core group who is there specifically to raise funds. So they're not just counting on their entry fee to be a donation. They are out there reaching out to family and friends. And I I love seeing the energy in Seattle and so forth, because that really showcases what the regattas can be. And it's just really exciting. So the Seattle is is an exception in terms of the 
It, it really, really is. It really oh, is. Oh, I thought that was like a road for the cure thing. Like oh. you just dressed oh. up. Like I have rode a four, like a four getting ready for the Charles in a full like hot pink bob wig <laughs> and like pink leg warmers. That yeah. That's Seattle, you know. I, I, w- I would love to take everybody from Seattle and infect all the row for the gear events around the country with that kind of enthusiasm. <laughs> Actually, we were curious. So that very first year, w- did you get in a boat in that procession? And then in years since, have you rowed in the row for the cure events? I've rowed in the Portland event a couple of times. Um, the first year I didn't, I was busy waving my arms and, (laughs) but they, but, and I needed to be able to go up onto the seawall, um, Komen invited me to come and and talk about Row for the Cure while people were rowing. (laughs) So do all the cities involved, like we know this year at San Diego and Seattle, do they operate, um, in the way that it, the entries raise money and whatever club raises the most money wins a pink concept two for your boathouse. When did that start? Gosh, about five years ago, I think maybe more than that. And that came out of Seattle too. A lot of the energy has come out of Seattle. One of the problems for most of the Row for the Curie events is they have very small budget mm-hmm. and they're small organizations and Oregon is the same. We just didn't have the budget to, to buy an urn to give away. So, um, you know, that's, that's very much a Seattle thing. Well, it's a lot of fun and it's been a really sweet journey for me personally, having lost my best friend in 2007 to breast cancer at a very young age, she was 39. And every year I would teach learn to row all summer. And then their carrot that I would dangle in front of my learn to row was that we would put together an eight for row for the cure. And I would cox them, you know, world's largest coxswain um, sitting in an eight. But I fashioned a cape that I would wear as the coxswain. And it was a pink cape with an N on the back for my friend, Noelle. And during the race, I would invoke that passion and that spirit and those homages. I would ask people for who meant something to them who Mm. had passed or was struggling with breast cancer. And I would call that out during the race. I'd be like Mm -hmm. 10 for so-and-so. And And these were learn to row graduates, Um, but it was just such a way to bring something into the boat that could almost distract them and say, this is how we can connect with each other. And I've loved the coach Coxon's meetings are always full of energy and full of uh, passion for the cause. And, and I just I personally have so appreciated the opportunity to homage my friend. Steady State Podcast is made possible with listener support. Today, we're sending a big thank you to our newest Patreon crew members, Stephanie M and ZS. If you want to join our lineup, find out about our Patreon support levels and benefits at patreon.com slash steady state network coming up on our next episode we sit down with british adaptive rower sophie brown who's excited to make her u.s debut at this year's head of the charles steady state podcast celebrates real life experience from launch to cock seat at every level search the archive at steadystatenetwork.com slash podcast dash topics or listen on your favorite podcast app Visit studystatenetwork.com to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. 
In two, we're back with Row for the Cure founder, Kathy Frederick. That's one, two. For folks that are like you, interested in starting a regatta for their club or maybe their own Row for the Cure event, what top three pieces of advice would you give them? Because I think there are probably a lot of surprises when you get down to the nitty gritty. I would say, number one, know, know that you have to stay in constant touch with your whole community. You can't just assume that people know what it is you want of them. You have to you have to really keep those communications going. Number two, find yourself some good friends in the U.S. Rowing Referees group. They are a tremendous resource in helping you put on whatever kind of regatta or event you want to do, because they can say you're going to need this, this, and this, and it it makes it much easier than trying to make something out of whole cloth. Number three, thank everybody. Always, always, always show generosity to the guy that you hired for security overnight, you know, who's who's there when you get there at six in the morning and the boats haven't been vandalized. And, and to the donors that if you have sponsors, um, make special ways to celebrate them, have something special for them at the regatta. So just, just being constantly aware of how much other people are giving and allowing that to show in whatever you're doing. Mm-hmm. I love that. Creating that culture of gratitude. I think we get really wrapped up in uh, regatta management and logistics and referees and meetings and dock space. I love remembering there's like, there's a human element there. And especially I think at the master's level, like we don't need to take ourselves so seriously that Mm -hmm. we forget how to say thank you. Mm -hmm. You know, it's about relationship building and the networking. Oh, yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, we know that across the rowing community, COVID really threw a wrench in things, you Mm -hmm. know, People weren't rowing, boathouses had to completely retool and figure out how to get people back on the water. Tara and I were lamenting because we just didn't plan a row for like an entire year. And I'm sure that it really wreaked havoc on Row for the Cure. So what happened in the last couple of years and have you had to pivot and refocus? It's a really good word for what we did. Luckily, I I had just prior to COVID retired as the president and executive director nationally of Row for the Cure. And Beth Cole is our current president, and she has a lot more experience in running a nonprofit. Susan G. Komen had to close all their affiliates across the country. Oh. And that was our local touch point was the Komen affiliates. 
and our money went to the affiliate and then the affiliate distributed it to uh, breast cancer organizations in the area of service organizations and into research and a portion always went back to the national cutting edge research grant uh, programs. So with COVID, our board looked at how would we do things different? And one of the first things we did was get ourselves established with a um, website for fundraising. Then we started looking around and, and, and said, okay, we still want to support research. And so we will continue to donate 10% of everything we raise to the research grant programs at Komen headquarters. The rest of the money we are retooling into going into local grants to service organizations. And in fact, this last year um, in in Oregon, we gave a grant to a group called Breast Friends, which is mm-hmm. a support group. It's a, it's a really terrific organization. And another one called Pink Lemonade Project. And mm-hmm. both of those organizations actually picked up some of the slack of, of services that Komen had been offering and wasn't able to offer anymore. If you're going to volunteer to help people, you have to, you have to do it. Um, You can't leave them high and dry. So those types of organizations are being funded um, in communities around the United States and also programs that teach uh, rowing to breast cancer patients like We Can Row and um, recovery on water water. (laughs) yep there's a we can row right here in dc uh and so i've seen so many women come through this program over the years and it's always exciting to see a new batch come in to learn to row stick with it and then head out at at local and regional regattas with their pink blades and their pink shirts and they're making uh, the case for women getting back on water and and finding that empowerment and, you know, all those messages that Row for the Cure is promoting as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, I know that the last couple of years has been rough for regattas across the country. I'm certainly hoping to see another Row for the Cure here in D.C. soon. Uh-huh. And now that you've told us that Row for the Cure is completely volunteer based, that really opens my eyes to some things. You know, some of these smaller organizations that may be struggling locally. I'd love to be able to help them um, rebuild and and see if here out on the East Coast, maybe Washington, D.C. can start, you know, having a little battle with Seattle for most creative and, and most flamboyant. <laughs> so one thing that this episode also precedes is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, which is October, as uh, many people know. And I just wanted to give a shout out to a previous guest on our podcast, Napoleon uh, Griffin from Texas, who has been doing a lot of education and advocacy for male breast cancer as a cause. And I know that our uh, male counterparts have always supported Row for the Cure. It's always uh, a very mixed event with everybody being represented. And and, uh, we're happy to say that Napoleon 
got to share his story with us. So if you haven't heard that podcast episode, that was, that was really a moving episode as well. And to um, date, it is, I think the most downloaded episode we've ever done. Really? Right, yeah. right, right, right. Well, well, you know, until this one, right? Until yeah. this one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Every one of them. I've, I had somewhere in my records, I have a picture of me and him together. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, I, I was just really, really impressed uh, with him and yeah. so, yeah, yeah. He, uh, he's a great character and a great rower and, and we've seen him uh, a number of different places and he's always a joy to be around. So we know October is breast cancer awareness month. There is an opportunity for clubs across the country to run their own events. If mm-hmm. someone wants to do that, but they're not quite sure how to get started. Is there information on the, uh, row for the cure website to help folks get their own events started? There's information on our website. There are links to the fundraising page and also just letting the board know that you're interested in hosting. One of us will be in contact right away to help answer questions. We do have um, some cheat sheets that we can send out really quickly. But one thing to remember is we try to keep the events as flexible as possible so they can be a parade of boats. They can be um, an ergathon. They can be a couple of events in an established regatta. Mm -hmm. And those the entry fees for those events goes as a donation to Row for the Cure. Or you could do a head race or you can do a sprint race. And there's no limit to what time of year. And really, we've tried to make not make it just one size fits all, but allow people to do what suits their community. Sure. So uh, keeping it flexible, keeping it available keeping it within people's budgets uh, for their clubs and so forth. I love that flexibility. I think that makes it so much more doable for people to uh, fly the flag of whatever they're raising money for. I love the idea of just an existing regatta and, and putting in a couple of row for the cure events. So like, you know, that might be something that uh, I know Rachel and I are both uh, competing at the Charles and we know like the director's challenge does that. It's like a fundraiser within the larger event. And it just sounds like that's more doable than like, Hey, let's put on a regatta. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Especially with uh, so many on the East coast, I understand that there are so many events that it's hard to find uh, referees and race directors and so forth. I did want to say concerning October is breast cancer awareness a month. uh, Rowing cares also has our pink the boathouse initiative, which doesn't entail necessarily rowing itself, but just Making your boathouse visible as supporting breast cancer awareness. We've got pictures of clubs lighting their boathouses up. Uh, People have a a pink tea and invite people to come. And uh, there's information from the local organizations that provide services. So there's lots of ways to support breast cancer without having to put on a regatta. Thank you for all that information. I think it's going to be incredibly helpful. And it is nice to think 
little bit smaller picture. If you can't host an entire regatta, maybe you can just do one thing to mm-hmm. get to get the ball rolling, to get the boat mm-hmm. moving, you know? Yes. yes. Okay. So I want to wrap it back to rowing uh, as we wrap up here. And one of my favorite things, and Rachel and I have asked this question for a lot of a lot of our guests is, do you have a favorite coxswain command that you've you- given or received? Mm. Let it run or swing. I love the swing. Mm -hmm. Mm, That's a good one. It opens everybody up, right? Yes, yes. One of my favorites to use, though, as a coxswain is lift your tiara up. So (laughs) so you're lifting up off your seat. You know, you're you're sitting nice and tall. It's like charm school in a boat. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) That reminds me of uh, something I used to hear from a coach. She would tell us to show off your pearls. Oh, oh, pearls. Yeah, show off your pearls. Or present, like you're presenting yourself to the queen, you know. Uh Yeah, I love that. This was a really lovely conversation. Thank you so much for talking with us about your involvement with rowing and getting Row for the Cure off the ground and sustaining it all these years. It's motivated me to get involved in ways that I haven't been involved in the past. So let's check back in and see how things are going in a year. (laughs) And um, really, I wish you the best of luck uh, this fall with your events. Well, thank you so much to both of you. And I just want to give a little shout out to our national board and thank them for all their work over the years and um, to the whole rowing community. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. Well, thank you, Kathy. This has been wonderful. We will talk with you soon. Thank you for sharing some of your morning with us. Okay. So much. Great to see you. All right. Great to see you. Good to see you again, Tara. Thank you. To see photos of Kathy, row for the Cure Regattas, and get links to the people, clubs, and events mentioned in this episode, check out the show notes on our website. Hey Tara, I think some listeners might not know that Steady State is more than a podcast. Right, we should tell them about Friday mornings when we get together for coffee chat. We talk about rowing, racing, technique, but we also deep dive into things like inclusion and leadership. Yeah, I really look forward to those Friday morning chats with you and our listeners. So we hope that you'll join us Friday mornings at 8 a.m. West, 11 East on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Grab your favorite mug and add your voice to the conversation. Steady State Podcast is brought to you by me, Tara Morgan. And me, Rachel Friedman. Between us, we have nearly 40 years of rowing, coaching, and coxing experience, and we run successful rowing-related enterprises. Tara is the founder of Seize the Oar Foundation, which champions inclusion in the sport of rowing through team training, outreach, and thought leadership. And Rachel is the founder of RowSource, designing unique rowing gear for individuals, clubs, and events. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Seize the Oar and RowSource. Follow Steady State Network on Facebook and Instagram at Steady State Network and on Twitter at Steady State Row. Steady State Podcast is a production of Steady State Network. This episode was written, produced, and edited by Tara and Rachel. Rachel also manages our website and social media. Our theme music is by the Free Harmonic Orchestra. In two, way enough. 
That's one, two, way enough.